before we get this episode started, we need to thank our wonderful sponsors. That are sponsors, especially our three annual sponsors, David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity, and Campbell University Divinity School. This podcast wouldn't happen. So here's where you come in. Take a few minutes to go to each of their websites and check what they have to offer. Or if you really want to take it to the next level, be sure to tweet about this episode and thank our sponsors. This podcast is presented to you by the School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University. The School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University exists to prepare men and women for Christian ministry, namely the work of the Lord's Church. Our two degrees, the Master of Divinity and the Doctorate of Ministry, are carefully designed to equip and encourage ministers for the calling that God has placed on their lives. The Master of Divinity offers six concentrations, and the Doctorate of Ministry can be obtained in either Christian ministries or pastoral care and counseling. Should God have called you to any number of ministry vocations, or if you aren't quite sure which one yet, you will find a place here at Gardner-Webb where, as one of our former deans once said, your heart and your head can be friends. For more information on the Divinity School and upcoming events, visit gardner-webb.edu backslash divinity. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Well, we've missed you over the last couple weeks. We took a break for CBS General Assembly in Dallas. We conducted over 10 interviews with people like Dr. Molly Marshall, Michael Ware, and Dr. Emmanuel McCall. These interviews will be featured later this year on a podcast. Before we get to our conversation, make you aware of the next month's worth of episodes and a couple podcast updates. The next few episodes, you will hear interviews with the author of Demanding Liberty, Brandon J. O'Brien, a conversation with Jesuit priest, Father James Martin, as well as podcast host and author, Christian Pyatt. Our guest for this week's podcast is an author, professor, and pastor. For the last 32 years, Robin Myers has pastored Mayflower Congregational Church in Oklahoma City. He's authored seven books, including Saving Jesus from the Church and Spiritual Defiance. He is the Distinguished Professor of Social Justice in the Philosophy Department at Oklahoma City University. Dr. Myers, thanks for joining the conversation. Andy, thanks so much for having me on. Now, the irony of interviewing you today um, is last night we had thunderstorms and tornadoes in North Carolina. So I remember waking up, looking at the prompt from my smartphone and thinking, you know, that's irony that I'm going to be interviewing somebody from Oklahoma uh, tomorrow morning. So, so thanks for passing that along to, uh, to North Carolina. Sure. I mean, we, we do what we can to spread the love. It, you know, it's interesting. I have a view of God that is called the luminous web. And actually, that's Barbara Brown Taylor's beautiful name, where everything is really connected to everything else. So if we have tornadoes here, it does affect what happens over there. Even if we just have to send them your way, everything's connected to everything. So we'll come back to that later in the conversation. There, there are some things I want to take from Oklahoma, but tornadoes are, are not, one, <laughs> not of one of them. Yes, I know. Well, you get the good and the bad. I mean, we can't, <laughs> just, you can't just have the good stuff, but I hope you, everybody's all right. Nobody got hurt. We just live with the reality of tornadoes as we live with the reality of ultra conservative politics and religion around here. So it's all part of a package. 
And that's what we're going to work on together. Yeah, you know, kind of the uh, the funny thing is I was at Oklahoma City a couple of years ago with our uh, CBF Oklahoma coordinator, Steve Graham. And he kind of said, you know, sitting out on the porch and watching tornadoes off in the distance is like the favorite pastime of Oklahoma. So I don't think I'll ever oh, get yeah. to that point. <clears throat> now, we run outside when the sirens blow and try to see them. That's how <laughs> that's how crazy we are, uh, because they're just a fact of life here. Um, but, you know, it's if you choose to live on the high plains, you're going to have tornadoes all the time where you live. Not so often. Um, but, you know. It's the world we live in. It's it's the place we live, and you adjust to the place you live in. So maybe we should change Oklahoma's uh, state tagline. You know, joyful observers of chaos. That's exactly, exactly. <laughs> now the the problem is not that we have them. Often the problem is what we do with them theologically. Like yeah. They're punishments by God, or somebody dies, and that person had I don't know sinned and deserved to be sucked out of their house. That's when the really awful stuff starts. Um, that's when we have to be careful. Yeah, I, I tend to find that uh, the reasoning around that seems to work when it's the judgment of other people, but uh, that reasoning seems to not work when people are the recipients of such chaos in their life. Yeah, isn't that the truth? They, they don't want to think they're being punished, but they do pronounce punishment on other people, which is just people playing God. And it would be better if we just let God be God. Well, for those that aren't familiar with your work, tell us a little bit more about you. Well, I'm the son of a minister and a professor. My, so I'm now a minister and a professor, so I, I've not fallen far from the tree, as they say. And I grew up uh, in a sort of liberal Protestant household. So we, my father was a great admirer of Harry Emerson Fosdick's and the liberal Protestant tradition. And I was raised believing that you could not be too smart to be a Christian, that you could study everything, you could think all thoughts, you did not have to fear critical thinking or uh, research, that that would somehow erode your faith, you know, that sort of hole in the dike theory. Well, if we challenge the virgin birth, for example, that's one hole in the dike, and then there's another hole and another hole, pretty soon the whole dike collapses. I've heard that argument my whole life, that you should fear thinking too much, lest your faith be compromised. And I was raised in a family where that was not the case. And in fact, we were encouraged to think as much as possible that our faith would survive that. It might, it might be changed by it. It might be altered, but it would not be destroyed. And that's probably the message I would send out to a lot of my sisters and brothers uh, in the church who really, really worry that there's places they can't go uh, lest the sort of house of cards collapses. So that was my upbringing. And of course, I'm here I am a, a, a preacher and a professor and have done that for a very long time. I've been at Mayflower now 33 years, and, and I've been a professor at a small private liberal arts college associated with the United Methodist Church, Oklahoma City University, for 28 years. Uh, and I don't, that's unusual in and of itself just to stay one place so long. But I also think it's where all the richness comes. You know, good things take time. So anyway, I was raised that way. I, I, it's a blessing. I used to listen to my father's sermons. He would take on some very controversial topics. He considered the pulpit to be free and belonging to no one and that you ought to speak your conscience in the pulpit. 
And if you make somebody mad, it's probably because you touched a nerve with them. Um, and if you love them all the rest of the time, that's, that's all going to be fine. So my dad was a big influence on me, Andy. There's no question about it. As fathers are big influences on most families for good or for ill. Hmm. Well, that's good to know that pastor's kids can go on and do bigger and brighter things. I just think about my two children and, you know, what I'm, what yeah. I've drugged them into. In, <laughs> in my life. Yeah. Well, we do feel guilty sometimes too, because they're in a fishbowl. Being the PKs is a difficult thing. Sometimes they expect that they have to be a certain way and that they can never misbehave. And all that goes with the, so that goes with the territory. And I think part of when I was in college, I, I was pretty determined not to be perceived as, you know, some sweet, pious uh, minister's kid. So I did my own share of misbehaving just so no one would misunderstand. <laughs> and, and I think that's typical. And you, you, you should prepare for your kids are going to make sure that they separate from you at certain times. Um, so just, you know, be ready and realize this too shall pass. Hmm. Already at six and three, they're already doing that. I actually was just uh, <laughs> with somebody uh, just yesterday um, where I learned what the middle finger meant uh, when I was yeah. 10 years old. It was from a pastor's kid. We were eating at a pizza hut in Alabama. Pastor's kid kept showing us this. And, you know, I'm the youngest of three boys. So I'm like, hey, I want to fit in. So I'll do it. My parents are mortified and they, you know, scream at me, where'd you learn that from? And I just pointed to the pastor's <laughs> kid and I'll never forget yeah. the look on that pastor's face. Uh, and you can imagine rural Alabama, what happened to that boy after that. So, uh, so oh, he, he got a whooping. Yeah. He got a whooping. That's what happened to him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in, uh, yeah, well, in yeah, Jesse, go ahead. Uh, and Jesse, you recently said, uh, in Oklahoma, one is either a Christian or is a Democrat, but you cannot be both at the same time. That would be peculiar. Is, yes. is being progressive <laughs> and liberal in Oklahoma, a real thing or, um, is Mayflower UCC just a, a unicorn that's out there? Well, I mean, we are the minority. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. We're an important minority for a lot of people in Oklahoma who are looking for something different than the dominant religious ethos. Um, and I'm proud of that. I mean, I, I mean, theologically, I come from the point of view that present day Christianity is largely misrepresented. That is, what started off as a way of life, a way of love, turned quickly into a system of creeds and doctrines demanding total agreement, that it's what you believed about Jesus that mattered, rather than whether you actually followed Jesus. And this runs all through my work, and so that's not going to be a surprise to you or any of your listeners. But it's still a fundamental watershed kind of, uh, of, of position. Everybody has to make up their mind whether believing certain things about Jesus, most of which the church created, you know, developed doctrine, whether that's really the essence of being a, a Jesus person. I, I sometimes even like to avoid the word Christian because it's so loaded down with so many negative things. But you still have to decide, is it, is it more important to pay attention to what Jesus taught us about God than it is to sign on to what the church has taught us about Jesus? And there's sort of no way to get away from this divide. And Mayflower firmly took the position that it was a way of life and that we had to love in a certain way. We had to be 
extravagantly welcoming. We had to declare ourselves a sanctuary church, which we are the first in Oklahoma to do. And, and we can talk more about that if you want, but it's been pretty extraordinary how people have responded to this idea of sanctuary. And I'm going to highly recommend it to all the churches out there and the leaders of the churches who are listening to this. Now, now is the time to protect dreamers and undocumented persons because they remain persons in the eyes of God, even those who have made mistakes or done something illegal, as we might all have done to make things better for our family. So people come to Mayflower expecting a certain approach to religion, and, and because they can't find it every place else or even most other places, they're very loyal. And, and like after Easter, uh, when I grew up, there used to be kind of a low crowd after Easter. That does not happen at Mayflower. We had as many people the Sunday following Easter, which is really Pentecost in the church, even though it doesn't happen for six weeks. That's really when Pentecost starts, Fred Craddock taught me. Um, and we had as big a crowd then as we had on Easter Sunday itself, because we've trained people that this is when the real work begins. And that everybody has to find a way to go out in their community and make things better. That we're not just meeting uh, on, a, on a Sunday morning to, to be seen and to be with like-minded people and to feel a little better about ourselves and go home and nothing changes. That is really what's killing the church and the perception that young people have that this is just some kind of social club. It assuages a little bit of guilt. Uh, it, it, it gives you an answer to the question, where do you go to church? Because that question is asked in Oklahoma about the third sentence when you're meeting somebody is, where do you go to church? Very important around here. But strangely enough, our social statistics uh, and our addiction rate uh, do not back up the fact that church is doing us any good. Uh, for the most part, some of the places in the country that have the greatest amount of religiosity, and that would be the South. You and me and the people listening, we, they have some of the worst social statistics. So teen pregnancy, addiction, domestic abuse, divorce, um, those numbers are worse down here than they are up in Massachusetts or Minnesota where all those weird liberals live. So something, really something is happening here. There's some fundamental disconnect. Um, and yeah, so that's, it is it is weird around here if people think you are a liberal and also a Christian because those two things simply don't compute in people's minds. Well, maybe go back to one thing you said. You talked about being apologetic for being a Christian. You ought to you ought to try being a Baptist minister in the South. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine their daily apology. It's always followed with, but we're not we're not those kinds of Baptists. Um, oh yeah, yeah. So well, that's so, generally true. Period. You say I'm a Christian, but I'm not one of those Christians. So, yeah. so that has a larger context as well. Yeah, go ahead. Well, uh, I wonder, as you talk about being a theological minority, what gives you the greatest joy um, about being a theological minority in, in Oklahoma City? Well, I'll, I'll give you. I mean, there, there's many examples. The dreamers that come to our church right now that we help fill out forms to help them have a better chance when they go before a hearing. Um, gives me joy. The fact that same-sex couples can be married here gives me joy. In fact, Mayfire was the first church in Oklahoma that married same-sex couples before it became legal. We didn't even have a wedding license we could give them, so we just made something up. But to this day, same-sex couples come to Mayfire. They said, would you marry us? 
and we say yes, and um, then they say, well, where can the wedding itself happen? And we say, well, here in the sanctuary. And they look at us and say, you're going to let us go into the sanctuary? So there's this idea that that space that isn't welcoming to them, that they don't get to go there like other people do. And they have this look of astonishment on their face. So that gives me joy. Um, the mission work we do in the community gives me joy. We just, this weekend, we did what's called Rebuilding Together. It used to be called Christmas in April. And it's a program where we, where we select a, a house that is in real need of repair, that's really unlivable, and that the people living there don't have the money to fix it up. And we descend on that house. We move all, we move all the furniture out. We put down new flooring, we put in new appliances, we paint the inside, the outside, we do landscaping. It's a, it's a kind of, of, of extreme makeover that the church does for people who are living in houses nobody should be living in. And we transform that house, we flip it. And that's the, one of the most amazing spiritual experiences that anybody at Mayflower has. And we just did that this weekend. And then the homeowners who've been sort of booted out for the day so they don't get in the way, come back to a new house. And the expression on their face is unbelievable. What I mean, they weep. They say, I guess there are good people in the world. They say, I never thought this would happen to me. I needed something good to happen to me. So you know what? Andy, that's the, that's the bottom line. When I hear people arguing about the virgin birth or the Trinity or the second coming, I think, <laughs> what is this compared to the tears of a homeowner who comes back to a new house? You've written titles like Why the Christian Right is Wrong. You don't seem to shy away from picking a fight with the dominant evangelical culture. So what are some of the challenges you face with being a theological minority? Well, I mean, that's the same challenges faced by any minority. So misunderstanding, accusations that we really have nothing about us that's redeeming, that we're sending a lot of people to hell, that's a very common one. You should you should realize what you're 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 imperiling the mortal souls of the people who come to your church, all those kinds of things. And we're not we're not interested in picking a fight so much as we are interested in letting people know that there are options available to them that are different than the dominant orthodoxy of the church. So the most common uh, comment we hear from people at Mayflower is, I never thought a church like this existed. And I know you've probably heard this too in Baptist circles. When someone comes to a church that really allows people to think for themselves, we don't all have to agree on everything. We just have to do everything out of love. When they find that kind of a church, they say, wow, I would have gone to church more often, or I would have thought differently about church if I'd known that all churches weren't the same. You know, the irony of lines like you're sending people to hell is that's also the same theological framework that says, you know, God's in control of all things. So apparently you now control the salvation of others. Right. And it, that is that is a contradiction, yeah. is it not? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's very good. That's very good, Andy. That'll yeah. preach. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you, so you've written a, a brilliant book. Um, it's called Spiritual Defiance, Building a Beloved Community of Resistance. Um, uh, one of the quotes sticks out to me. Um, what began as a quiet rebellion of mourners soon grew into a movement that inspired collective embodied noncompliance with the status quo. 
vertical and hierarchical religion was flattened by horizontal and democratic egalitarianism. Women speak and lead, half-breeds find a place at the table, tribalism was trumped by joy. Let's talk a little bit about the spiritual wow. science. <laughs> Did I write that? I, <laughs> when you have your own work r read back, you think, oh, hey, that was pretty good. I don't even remember writing that, but I like it. I like it. Um, this goes back to what I said before about is it a way of life or is it a, 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 a system of creeds and doctrines, which it very quickly turned into and Constantine solidified. Um, I, I, I accepted Yale's, Yale Divinity School's invitation to do the Beecher Lectures in 2013, and Fred Craddock had done them, and he was the only other person from Oklahoma, and so I was very excited, and I, frankly, I was very nervous. I looked at the list of people who'd given the Beecher Lectures and thought, I don't belong in this list. Reinhold Niebuhr <laughs> gave the Beecher Lectures, and I thought, well, I'm no Reinhold Niebuhr. You know, I flash back to that Lloyd Benson-Dan Quayle debate <laughs> where Lloyd Benson says, Senator, I worked with uh, with John Kennedy. Uh, I, I knew John Kennedy. You're no John Kennedy. I was afraid someone's going to get up at Yale and say, we worked with Reinhold Niebuhr. We, we knew Reinhold Niebuhr. Robin, you're no Reinhold Niebuhr. But anyway, I got over it. <laughs> I got over it, and I gave three lectures, and they're supposed to be really on preaching, or that's really what they've always been about. But when you go back and look at the charter of the Beecher Lectures, it doesn't say they're about preaching. It just says they're about any topic germane to the ministry. So I decided that I would talk about resistance uh, to ego, which I think I'm talking here about the ego of the, of the clergy, which is very, very destructive. So how do you resist ego? How do you fall off your horse and get your face smeared with dust and get back up a different person like, like Saul of Tarsus? The second was resistance to orthodoxy, why is it that we are to be told the right way to worship and the right way to believe when Jesus didn't seem to be about that at all? And the third was resistance to empire, which is really where it gets kind of dicey, because you have to confront the fact that we live in an empire. We live in the Pax Americana. We are an empire in the world. We are a colossus astride the planet. Our military reach is huge. Then our other forms of influence uh, our entertainment empire, uh, the way we the way we spread influence of all kinds across the globe is enormous. So we live in an empire, and if Jesus resisted the Roman Empire, and I think you can make that case very strongly, and there's a whole new body of scholarship to help you do that. If that was the resistance of Jesus, then how how does the church today resist the American Empire? People don't like this because, first of all, they don't want to think of America as an empire. They would rather we not use the E word. They think it sounds like, I don't know, some kind of death star or something really negative. But we're an empire in the way we, we behave, the way we protect our national interests, the way we promote commerce around the world. Actually, the military has become a kind of worldwide police force for corporations. Well, Andy, people don't like to hear this, and they think that's not patriotic and they think it's overly critical. I really don't care about all of that. I, I look at a Jesus who walked into the temple and overturned the tables of the sellers of the doves and the sacrificial animals and drove people out with a whip. If that's the model, then surely preachers can be a little bolder in taking on their own country. And that doesn't mean we don't love our country. And we love we criticize that which we deeply love because 
if our kids, if one of our children were involved with drugs or alcohol or something that was destructive, we would confront them about it. And they might say, well, so you don't love me. That's very strange. It's because I love you that I'm confronting you about what is harming you. So we desperately need to bring back a free pulpit in the church. And, and ministers are going to have to get up and say what they really believe, what's really bothering them, and let the chips fall where they may. Sometimes that's going to make people angry. But there's an equation in preaching. If you don't ever risk disapproval from someone, how are they to trust when they, you when they do agree with what you say? So if somebody never comes through the line and says, I just didn't agree with you today, and I say, that's fine. Thank you for sharing that. I love you anyway. And they say, I love you too. When they come back the next time through the line and say, that was right on target. I really agreed with what you said. I can trust that person's comment because I have previously offended them and they've been honest about that. So it's a sort of a it's sort of an equation, a homiletical equation. And that's what I would want any of your clergy listening uh, to this podcast to, to, to just realize that sometimes you have to offend people if you are, in fact, going to also inspire people. So that was the theme of the book, Spiritual Defiance, and Yale University Press published the lectures. They were slightly expanded, and uh, that was a couple of years before the word resistance became the dominant word in our culture after the election of, of Donald Trump. So it was sort of fortuitous that people could go back and say, hey, wait a minute, somebody's written about resistance before resistance was hot, before it was the cool word. Um, and that has led for I, I've gotten the opportunity to travel and lecture, you know, an almost unmanageable amount. I'm trying to manage it, but it's been difficult. And I say things to people that that upset them, like that you shouldn't have an American flag in your sanctuary. You should not have an American flag in your sanctuary. And that's not because I'm not a patriot. I'll I'll shed a tear on the Fourth of July when we're singing those patriotic hymns as fast as anybody. But the symbol of a nation state does not believe does not belong in a house of prayer for all people. It's a contradiction. So take the flag and put it in your in your fellowship hall or out on your front lawn if you want. And there are some people who would even be un, unsettled by that. But it certainly does not belong in the sanctuary. And I have succeeded. <laughs> this has become my new mission. I'm trying to get people, I'm trying to get churches to get their American flags out of their sanctuaries because it's highly symbolic that we do not worship the empire, we worship God. And we're a country with other countries and we're not perfect. And so don't have the symbol of our nation state right up there in the sanctuary near the cross. That's just, that's just bad theology. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Campbell University Divinity School. Committed to Christ-centered, Bible-based, and ministry-focused theological education, and committed to helping you answer your call with a variety of master's and doctoral-level programs. To get a taste of Campbell's experience, you are invited to attend the World Religions and Global Culture Center's first international conference on religious diversity, July 26th through the 27th. The theme of the conference is Jesus in a Pluralistic Age. Respected Christian and non-Christian leaders and scholars in North Carolina and around the world will participate at the conference as speakers and members of panel discussion. The conference will nurture a spirit of tolerance and mutual understanding among devotees of different faith traditions. Special guests will include local Christian, Jewish, and Muslim clergy, Dr. George Braswell, 
Dr. Peter Fawn, Dr. Leo Lifbuer of Georgetown University, and Stephen Porter of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The event will begin on Thursday, July 26 at 12.30 p.m. and will end on Friday, July 27 at 11.30 a.m. The cost is $25 and students can attend for free. For more information or to register, visit our website at divinity.campbell.edu. We invite you to learn more about us. Check out our degrees, concentrations, and programs. Come to one of our continuing education lectures, to a visitation day, to one of our regional recruiting events. Contact us to schedule an individual visit. Call one of our faculty and lead a retreat or Bible study or wrestle with difficult issues. We look forward to hearing from you. I'm on board with everything you said, but there was one heretical thing that you said that we have to point out. I have never met a pastor with an ego, so I don't know. What <laughs> you don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Oh, me neither. I guess I misspoke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All of us are, are meek and humble, who humble, soft-spoken, who simply just want yes. uh, the gentleness of Christ to flow through us. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> and here's, the, here's what we say in Oklahoma about a true egomaniac. We have a little saying. Uh, a true egomaniac is a man whose fondest wish is to die in his own arms. <laughs> I just love stuff like that. Yeah, that's bad. <laughs> anyway, the last thing about empire, resistance to empire, there's a whole list of ways in the book, there's a whole list of things that you can do to resist empire. One of them is we should pay property taxes. Um, churches take millions of acres off the property tax rolls, thereby depriving public schools in their communities of desperately needed funds. Because as you know, Oklahoma led the nation in defunding public education. And we've just come off a two-week teacher strike as a result of that. You can't just treat people like slaves. It's, it's just it's despicable. They're too important to the future. They're too important to our kids. Well, look how hypocritical it is for the church not to pay property taxes and then turn around and talk about the kids that Jesus loved, yellow, black, and brown, and white. They're precious in his sight and all that. Oh, but uh, by the way, we're not chipping in our two cents to, to help fund public education. Now, Andy, this idea was popular with <laughs> Absolutely no one. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I had a few lay people who said who, who will say amen at that point. But denominational officials, nope. People struggling to put their budget together at church, nope. Um, ministers, nope. <laughs> For the most part, that idea was not well liked. And all I can tell you is, I've spent my life putting out ideas that are not popular, and I'm not going to stop. And because I believe we should do that. Now, I think we should still get a tax deduction when we give to nonprofits, whether it's a church or another nonprofit, just because we need them so desperately and they're in such dire straits. If you take away the tax deduction incentive for contributions to churches or other nonprofits, then half of them will perish overnight. And I recognize that even that tax deduction is a something of a compromise. It puts us a little bit in bed with the empire, and then it's a little difficult to criticize the empire. However, I'm willing to take to, to, to compromise there. But I really think property taxes ought to be paid, and I think they ought to be built into church budgets. So there's just an idea that we can throw out there that everybody can shake their heads and go, Robin, are you crazy? 
because I, that wouldn't be the first time I've heard that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you wrote in the book, uh, I guess, slash lectures, uh, spiritual resistance must always be a self-conscious and intentional decision to obey as the disciples, the radical demands of the kingdom of God. By definition, we are a community that lives the honor of our inheritance, but we are also called to shape the future through hope, to blend the arc of history towards justice. You know, we often talk about defiance. I feel like on um, on such a, a, a large scale. For you, what does this look like um, on an individual basis? What does this look like I'm for glad our you, church? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm glad you asked that because I think there's an impression people get. This just means marching in the streets and shouting slogans. And there are times when that's important, but I honestly think we've put too many eggs in that basket. When I talk about resistance, I mean you find something going on out there that deals death and indignity, and you push back against it. It can be the simplest thing. If you are tutoring um, a junior high school student, a middle school student who's fallen below reading level and needs a mentor every week to to read with and, and talk to, that's an act of defiance. What you're defying is apathy. Okay, what you're defying is the idea that that kid doesn't matter and is not worth my time. And I always tell this story when I'm lecturing to people about, they ask me, well, what can I do to become a Christian? Like, what's the first thing I do? What is Christianity 101? I'm new to all this. And they think I'm going to give them a list of things to believe. And I always tell them, start here. The next time you're standing in line at the grocery store and a young black man is sacking your groceries and avoiding your gaze make sure he looks at you before you say, thank you, sir. That's where you start. Those are the things that change the world. So defiance is not big acts of public protest. There are lots of little things that we do in our everyday life that actually make a difference. Because as I said at the beginning of this uh, conversation, everything really is connected to everything else. And I'm moving in that direction in terms of my understanding of God. I don't think of God as a person or an old man in the sky, that kind of Michelangelo on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel God. And a lot of people are not there anymore either. I think there's an actual, there's a God crisis in the church. We're going to have to change our language, the way we pray, and certainly the way we behave. I think you're really onto something there. Uh, just so much on on this micro level that, we're so disconnected from our neighbor. We don't even know our neighbor's name. I mean, I, I'm just thinking about uh, this morning. I went, you know, sat down at Starbucks and um, sipping coffee and doing some work. And you know, people are coming in and out now. They don't even have to go to the barista. They can, you know, mm-hmm. through their app, just walk up, pick up their drink, and walk back out. You know, if if, right, if you right. show up at some of the local grocery stores, you don't even have to go in the grocery store anymore. You just order online, and somebody puts it in your car. Yep. You get out of the car because you prepaid. We don't. We don't even make eye contact or make uh, verbal recognition of those that um, we are paying to service us or provide a resource for us. Um, mm-hmm. So there is such a, a simple and yet profound change of, of looking someone in the eye, of, of saying thank you, of recognizing um, the presence of another. Yeah, I and mean, that's, what, that's what church has to rediscover. It has to be a beloved community of inclusion where you do know people's names and they can come and their joys and sorrows can be lifted up and people can greet them by name that can give them a hug 
This isn't happening in our culture because it's a culture of rampant individualism. So look at our culture. Look at the suicide rate. Look at the opioid addiction rate. Look at the, the, the depression rate and the desperate loneliness in this supposedly connected world. That's the deep illusion about social networking. Social networking is maybe one of the cruelest hoaxes we've ever perpetrated. Of course, we perpetrate it for money. I canceled my Facebook account two years ago, so I beat the rush because Facebook cost us the last election, among other things. So it's uh, extraordinary to me how much personal information people are willing to give up. You know why? They, they think that's a form of connection. They really believe that sitting at home on their computer and connecting with other people by posting their most idealistic self online is the same thing as community. Or that when they shoot off an email about Black Lives Matter or something that, that, that they want to weigh in on, that they've actually done something to change the situation in the world. We're really poised right now for the church to either go ahead and die completely or come out of the closet as a beloved community because people still need real community. In fact, they need it now more than ever. So if you're figuring out what your model for ministry is, think a little bit less about whether everybody's going to have to believe X, Y, or Z. And ask yourself whether everybody who comes is going to feel welcome and valued, because either all of us matter or none of us do. Obviously can't um, spend too much time on digging into, you know, what does this look like on an individual basis? Um, so for you, what, what does this look like um, on, on the church level, on the local uh, faith community level? Well, I think that the church, if it's going to be missional and it's going to be engaged in its community and trying to solve problems that people identify as the real problems they're having, which, by the way, the press often misrepresents what people are really worried about. They're worried about public transportation, health care and quality, public education. Those are the three top things. They're not gay marriage or abortion. That's the hot button issues the press puts out there to keep people riled up and divided and all of that. So what churches need to do now is, first of all, agree that there are going to be people in them who disagree about things, just like in your families. I mean, so so what? How it couldn't it can't be any other way. So conformity is not what we're after in beliefs. It's conformity of service that we're after. It's conformity of love that we're after. It's that we're there to make something better. We can't do everything, but we can do something. So we get involved in community organizing. All, all churches ought to figure out what the community organizing apparatus in their local setting is and be sure they're involved so that you can host listening sessions. When the utility company is about to raise the rates, you can show up in mass at the city hall and the politicians will have to look out at a big crowd and do what they're doing uh, under scrutiny instead of in isolation, you know, how it is that most city council meetings are nine people there, the same nine people are always there. So you can do that. You have to get organized. You have to have the ability to fan out quickly, to sort of have rapid response capacity. That means people have to be the keepers of good email lists. So in our sanctuary movement, for example, we have one group that looks at at uh, social justice issues, uh, actual uh, harboring of, a, of an undocumented person and how we do that without all ending up in jail. 
A second group is just about connections to the Hispanic community, the immigrant community that's largely Hispanic in, in Oklahoma and most other places. And another group that's all about interacting politically with the political establishment. So we, we establish these working groups in our church completely run by lay people. We're a lay-driven church. The stuff at Mayfire does not come from the top down. The vision comes from the top down. The work comes from the bottom up. And I would encourage pastors to not worry, uh, to not to not be so into control. If if somebody comes up with an idea and they think it'll make the world better, let them try it. If it fails, it fails. But if it succeeds, how do we know everything that's going to succeed or not? Let it be. Uh, let it happen. Let it be organic. And do everything you can to help people, and 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 trust the movement of the spirit. Sometimes I think pastors want too much control of everything, including the Holy Spirit, because she she is uh, beholden to no one. Now, now, Robin, you're you're getting back to this heresy that ministers have egos and for all <laughs> things know the answers to all things. How dare you? We 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 talked about this. Yes, I know. We we did settle that, and I I'm sorry I keep bringing it up again. Um, <laughs> well, you wrote... I mean, I'm no different. I, I, all of us are standing in front of people. Look, I write books and give speeches and give sermons, so the the desire to be in front of people's clearly in me. Uh, the desire for self display, it's there. I have to admit to it. If I can harness it for good purposes, then it it's redeemed. But if it's just all about glory and fame and am I somebody, does everybody know my name, once you go down that route, you're in trouble. You'll end up being, you'll end up being depressed, and nothing will ever be enough. It's what I call striving, and ministers are going to have to figure out how to stop striving and just be happy to serve. Service is its own reward. It just comes in different ways than the world will reward you. So. Yeah, yeah, egos. Egos are the most dangerous. They're the biggest threat to authentic ministry there is out there. Hmm. Um, and they warp everything that happens in church because you're going to have people who are not happy with you. You're going to have people who don't like you. You're just going to have to love them anyway. And if you love them anyway, it's amazing how they come around because they didn't get the response from you they expected. So they want you to hate them back. And if you do that, well, where are we? We're, we're exactly where we are in the country, just split right down the middle. And that's not working out very well. Um, it's astonishing to me that 82% of Christian evangelicals supported Trump because they'd been telling me for years that character counted. Moral character is what really counts. So that's why they couldn't stand Clinton, Bill Clinton. He had a pretty successful presidency by all measures, actually a very successful presidency. But he had this problem, you know, had this problem with women, and he did, and he lied about his affair with Monica Lewinsky, or he tried to tweak it in such a way that it wasn't a lie, but it was a lie, and that's despicable. And all my fundamentalist friends in Oklahoma said, it's about character, it's about character, and all that went out the window, Andy, when Donald Trump ran for president, because clearly it's not about character. It's about the Supreme Court, it's about the possibility of overturning Roe v. Wade. It's about tax cuts, and it's about deregulation. And if all that can come our way, then we'll just pretend that either character uh, – he's involved in character formation. He's being saved as we speak, 
and he's really a different man now, or you were lying all along. And I hate to say it, but they were lying all along. I wish they had not been lying. I wish it really was about character. Because if it's not going to be about character, then what exactly, what is the church for? Are we just one more sort of lobbying organization? We're going to press our cause to our constituency and get everything we can? That's a pretty sad definition of the church. Yeah, I think it's, I think one of the most difficult aspects of defiance is to not tend towards uh, self-righteousness and judgmentalism towards those that think and speak differently uh, from us. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that sticks out for me from the book is um, you wrote this obsession with being right. the, The claiming of absolute knowledge led to unthinkable violence and continues to this day to haunt the reputation of all organized religion. It must be resisted. It is a wound in the body of Christ as surely as a spear that was thrust into his side. So how do we approach defiance in a way that both uh, speaks and acts uh, clearly against injustice, but also has compassion for those who might be the, um, the people of injustice, the people who are actually yeah, well, the, causing these problems? That's the challenge, isn't it? That's the challenge. We say every Sunday at Mayflower, love one another, and then the whole congregation responds, every single other. And I've had some people come up to me and say, I can't say that because I, I dislike Donald Trump so much or I dislike, you know, fill in the blank. Uh, Robin Myers, <laughs> I'm not going to say every single other because I would be lying. It is possible to resist injustice and still respect and love people involved in injustice. That is possible. I think actually the model for this is Jesus. You're reading the New Testament carefully. Uh, we all we all fall into the trap of hating the person instead of hating the injustice, and and also not trying to understand why the person who's being unjust is so wounded and so broken. There's a story behind everybody who's a hater. They were they were probably hated themselves. Many of them were abused. If we forget that, we are lost. But that does not mean we don't continue to say this is wrong because this is wrong. And this concept of false equivalencies scares me to death that we live in a kind of a world of equally true ideas. We don't. Uh, Love is better than hate. And and peace is better than war because life is better than death. And if you're not going to stand there, then what in the world are you doing? You should just go out and, I don't know, sell insurance or something. So – it's going to look like we're against the, the person when we are against some of the things the person is doing, but we have to be careful to separate those things out and not make it personal. Keep it focused on the injustice itself and, and, and not just do the ad hominem attacks against the human beings. That's hard to do. I wish I had a simple answer or even a shorter answer. Uh, I struggle with it myself. I end up just despising people that do bad things, and I realize, wait a minute, uh, that's not going to accomplish anything. I need to despise the thing itself, but not the person. You've got seven books under your, under your wing. Uh, what, what's next for you? What's next? I'm glad you asked, because I just signed a contract with Penguin Random House. Uh, which I've never written a book for Penguin Random House, uh, and I did not realize that they're the largest 
publisher on the planet. So I'm very excited. I'm going to do a book under the working title, Falling Off the Ceiling, The Death of Michelangelo's God and the Rebirth of Wonder. And I'm so terribly fond of that title. I hope they don't change it. You know, they do sometimes. They get the final call on the titles. But it all relates to that image, that sort of default image we all have of the God that's on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. I think that God has fallen off, maybe sometime in the middle of the night. Maybe a janitor came in and found the pieces of the plaster all over the floor. And someone said, oh, no, God has fallen off the ceiling. And the janitor says, well, maybe he was tired of being up there and wanted to be down here with us. <laughs> so the whole book is going to be a shift, a, a very significant theological shift in the way we think of God, not as an old man in the sky, not, e not even as an agent not even as someone sort of processing prayer requests and handing out rewards or punishments, because you get into some pretty sticky theological problems when a plane crashes and one kid survives and the parent says, God saved our child. Well, what about the other 160 people who died? You've said that God's in the saving business, the intervening to save a passenger in an airplane crash business. Well, then if that's, if that's the claim, then the claim, then you ha then you can't blame people for asking, why didn't God save everyone else? And what does that say about the fickleness of God or the selectiveness of God? And aren't all those other lives precious too? So I think there's a God crisis in the church that is part of what is driving church out of existence, and that we don't we don't take on the most important topic of all. What do we think God is? How do we communicate with whatever God is? How do we act in a world if, the, if God is not a super person, a supernatural person somewhere out there doing stuff, which I don't believe, even though I still believe that there's something mysteriously connecting all of us at both a physical and spiritual level that we could call God. But I'm not satisfied anymore with the old ways of talking about God or praying to God. And I think a lot of people share that same frustration. So this, this book's going to be about establishing what I call a theology of consequence instead of a theology of obedience. And this idea, I write books because I get an idea that sort of obsesses me. And the only way I can get it out to exercise it, if you will, is to write it. Uh, writing as a form of exorcism. I actually believe that's how it works. And I have till the end of the year to finish up this book. And I'm going to talk about a world that's mysteriously inter interconnected, that there's nothing you do every day from the smallest decisions to the largest ones that don't affect everything in the field. You know, quantum physics says we live in a field, not in a world of separate objects. They look like they're separate and they are at the macro level. But apparently, according to quantum physics, they're not at the micro level. So this conversation we're having right now is changing something. And when people listen to it, it will change more things. And then those people will go out and do things differently, and that will change things until, in fact, everything is changed. So nothing can happen that doesn't affect absolutely everything else, not all at the same level. But there is no separation. The theological idea I'm most interested in now is this. There is no separation. There is no separation. And sin is the illusion of separation, that I can do things and kind of get away with it because I'm not really connected 
to everything else in the luminous web. That's a lie. You are. It's, you're going to be caught. You're going to be found out, and you're going to do damage on the way. So that's what this book's going to be about. I'm very, very excited about it. I don't know what I'm talking about, to come back to our original comment about ego. First thing ministers ought to say is, we don't know. I don't know. <laughs> you don't know. And it may be disconcerting to our people to hear us start sermons by saying, now, I don't know what I'm talking about here, but I'm going to anyway. Uh, because we feel things. We feel things at an intuitive level sometimes that we're not very good at expressing in language with all the limits of language. But that doesn't mean we stop trying. And this God, this this sort of uh, heavenly patriarch God is been, has been co-opted for all kinds of evil and continues to this day to you know, be on one side or another in war and to weigh in on the culture war issues as if God's this gigantic politico out there. Well, that I don't know that we can survive that. I mean, uh, radical Islam claims that Allah is 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 behind everything they're doing. Every death, every death of an innocent is somehow glory to Allah. Well, if that's I mean, we did it in the Crusades. Christians did it. That we Christians have killed more people for religious purposes than anyone else, and that's important to remind people. We always descend into this co-opting of God. We say. Imago Dei, made in the image of God. That's a beautiful idea. I'm afraid also the flip is true, that God is often made in the image of humans. And I would like to address that issue head on and see if we can put ourselves in a different relationship with the ultimate mystery that is not so personal, but far more mysterious and spiritual. Get, get back the idea of God as spirit, which is really a biblical idea kind of an invisible movement, an invisible connection, that which brooded over the waters at creation. We need to get back to that. It sounds very Buddhist, but that's fine. I'm, maybe I'm becoming a Buddhist Christian. I can think of worse things. <laughs> 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 yeah, so anyway, that's more than you need to know about the next book, but it should come out sometime next year, and I'm taking some time off to really work on it. Um, going to take three months off this summer on a sabbatical just to do the writing and we'll see what happens. Hmm. So my only follow-up question is uh, when do I get an advanced reader's copy and when are we looking <laughs> for 2019? Well, I'll let you know. I will, you will be on the list of people that, that find out when it comes out. And uh, I, I hope I can go out and talk about it. I've been very lucky. I'm a very fortunate. I'm one of the privileged of the earth. Not only because I'm white and male, which makes me privileged, or as we say around here, I woke up on third base and thought I hit a triple. <laughs> um, <laughs> first thing we have to deal with is white privilege in this country and the deep legacy of racism, which is still very much with us. Um, but if 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 it if I get the chance to go out and talk about the book, and by the way, it's part of the part of the problem with Michelangelo. It's a white god reaching down to a white Adam. We've got whiteness everywhere. We've got patriarchy everywhere. And in that painting on the Sistine Chapel, God has either either Mary uh, or Eve under his arm. There's debate about that among art historians. I think it's Eve. I think he's about to give Adam this gift. Like, here you go. What do you think? Pretty nice, huh? And that's kind of how the story's written. You know, the animals don't do it for him. And then Eve is made, and he goes, oh, that's more like it. Okay, so 
there's all these um, there's all these default settings in our brain about church, about God, about politics. They all need to be challenged. All our assumed premises need to be challenged. Maybe money doesn't trickle down. Maybe more guns does not make us safer. Maybe we really are a land of immigrants, and we better not forget that. So this is what makes ministry very exciting. I talk like this in the pulpit. I don't just talk like this on a podcast or amongst my friends at the university. I just let it all fly <laughs> and, and and trust that other people are thinking about these same things and worrying about these same things, and they need somebody to hear them. So like all of my other work, it's just been about a second opinion and about consoling people who think maybe they're the only people who think these things, and then now they realize they're not. Well, if you want to stay connected with Robin, don't look him up on Facebook because uh, that account's been canceled <laughs> for two years. Uh, you can check out mayflowerucc.org. Dr. Myers, thank you for having the courage to be a theological minority in Oklahoma and your willingness to speak, to act, and to write about it. Thanks, Andy. It was a pleasure and uh, blessings to everyone. This podcast is brought to you by David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts. At UCC, they specialize in partnering with churches and ministries like yours to provide quality products for your logo and branding. David likes to find the right products that represent and fit your desired need and budget. UCC can logo virtually any product that you might be looking for. Need apparel like t-shirts, jackets, polos, socks for staff, youth groups, conferences, or for many other branding needs? UCC is your one-stop shop. UCC can provide all logoed items that you use for visitors, from pins to drinkware, or tees for VBS. David desires to be your go-to guy for all items logoed. On a personal note, I've been using David at Universal Creative Concepts since 2009, and I hope you will give him the opportunity to serve your promo needs. Whatever you want logoed, David does it. Contact him today at 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.net. That's 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.net. Hey, you won't be disappointed. Well, that's our episode. We'll see you next week. Visit cbf.net for more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, stories about our field personnel, chaplains, and church starters, as well as our advocacy work around the world. 